Good morning, church. Uh, we have a new series we're going to be in this, starting this week. Uh, we're going to be going back to the Old Testament. The series is called The King of Kings. We're going to be looking in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel and the Kings and a little bit into Chronicles. We're going to be looking at those first three kings of Israel, specifically Saul and David and Solomon. And what we're going to do is, as we walk through this, uh, we're going to look at their kingship in light of God's kingship. And we're going to see God's work through the Israel's kings. And I, I had asked, I wanted to call it Game of Thrones. Um, but apparently I'm not allowed to call things, name things after HBO series, so the elders squashed me, um, you know, pressed but not crushed. Come on, we'll, we'll go, we'll figure something out. But um, the kings, the story of the, king, the kings is an incredible story, but it's got to be read in its context. If we just rip this story out of the greater story, we're going to miss a lot of what God is doing here. Uh, one of my favorite book series of all time, The Chronicles of Narnia. Any Narnia fans in the house? That's right. So we, that's a weird thing to whoop, but whatever. Um, no, I'm just kidding. So we, uh, I love this story, and I've read these probably since the age of six. I've read them four or five times. Now, even though I'm very familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia, if you just jumped in, like if I just pulled this random sentence that says, come on, scrub, said Puddle Grum, I'd have some questions for you. Like, now wait a second, Puddle Glum, was he in Silver Chair, I think? And then who was Scrub? And what was going on in this book? And then how does that book fit in with the larger series? And I just, I would need to get oriented a little bit, right? I can't just jump right in. I need context, people. I need context. Well, oftentimes what we do is we treat the Bible like it's just one big uh, book of, of little stories and fortune cookies. And we just kind of take these verses out of context and put them on calendars with puppies and mountains. And, and we, we love, or we'll just take, we have all these nice little fables from the Bible. We know the story of David and Goliath, and we know the story of Daniel and the lion's den. And these are nice stories that teach us about bravery and kindness and courage. And, and those things are true, but if we miss, if we miss what God is really trying to do here, he's trying to show us that there's all these little stories that are actually telling one grand story. And we've got to keep the little stories in context, otherwise we're going to miss out. We're going to miss out. If we don't, what will happen is if we don't have the right context, we'll start to make some wrong observations about these stories. We'll start to interpret these stories wrong, and then we're going to start to make the wrong application. They have major, there are major ramifications for not seeing the context. So we want to see how this story fits in with the larger story. We say context is king. So here we'll say context is king of Kings. So if you remember, we, a couple of years ago, we did this um, series on this very thing called His Story. And we wanted to see the, the big story, how the Bible is a unified story that points to Jesus. And if you remember, if you've been here for a while, we had this timeline. Some of you guys are like, oh, I remember that thing. And we, we had these motions, and we're bringing them back. So stand up with me. Come on. Come on. Stand, stand up. Come on. You think I'm kidding? I'm not kidding. So here's what we're going to do. You're going to repeat after me. I'm going to show you the motion and the word, and these are, these are going to help us remember this biblical timeline. Ready? Repeat after me. God. God. Creation. Creation. Fall. Fall. Promise. Promise. Flood. <laughs> Tower. Tower. Patriarchs. Patriarchs. Exodus. Exodus. Law. It's the commandments. There you go. Conquest. Conquest. Judges. Judges. Kingdom. Divided, there you go. Uh, exile, return, silence, Jesus, church, called out ones, yeah. Uh, return, it's like a horse, I don't know, that was a rough one. Uh, and then eternity, 
Very good. You guys are louder than the first hour. Well done. Have a seat. Have a seat. Good job. So you remember this story, and we're going to just kind of a quick run through here to remember where we are so we can zoom back in for context. In the beginning, there was God. There was only God. No one else existed. God existed in the form of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God had everything he needed, including relationship. God had built-in community as a three-in-one God. He didn't need anything else, and he alone was the sovereign king because he had no rivals. There was no other being in the universe. But then God created the heavens and the earth, and God wanted to share. He wanted to share that Trinity love. And so he makes humans as the crown jewel of his creation, made in his image, and we serve as these little kings here on earth to rule and reign with him, to partner with God as our king, to obey him and rule with him. And what he said, he said, remember there's this one tree in the garden that I don't want you to eat of. I want you to trust me and my kingly wisdom. But of course, we know the story. What happens? Adam and Eve say whatever to the main king, and they say, we'll decide what's right and wrong. We'll be our own kings. They eat of the fruit, and the fall comes into play. Sin enters into the world, and since Adam and Eve, every other person has been proud, trying to be their own king instead of trusting God to be king. So as they populate the earth, they do so with sinners. And, and God, right there in the garden, though, he makes this promise. He says, I'm going to send you a king, a king who will conquer your sin, a king who will make things right again now that you've gone off track. But as these people populate the earth as sinners, they get to the point where God says, I've got to wipe you out. You're so sinful, he kills everybody but eight people. Because remember, he's got that promise. And so he, he preserves a line through Noah, saves them, and as Noah's family repopulates, there are more people trying to be their own kings. And so God comes to them when they're in this tower trying to build up their own name and who they are as people. God says, that's not going to happen. He confuses their languages and creates nations. Now from that, those nations, God chooses one nation where we get the, the patriarchs and uh, Father Abraham, right? I have many sons. We have Isaac and we have Jacob. And he says, from this nation, I'm going to bring this deliverer who will save all nations. And so this nation forms in Egypt where they're in slavery. But then God, through the powerful right hand of our king, delivers them from Egypt in this exodus, brings them into the wilderness where he gives them this law. He says, I want you to stand out from all the other nations. As you obey me, as you worship me and trust me, you're going to look different than all the other evil nations. So then, of course, he leads them into the land where he drives out the other nations to give them the land that he'd promised clear back to Abraham. And as they settle into this land, is everything, is this just the happy ending? It's not. They start to worship the nations, the other gods of the nations around them that they failed to drive out. And so they need to be rescued over and over again in this period called Judges, where God will bring in these judges to rescue them from themselves, ultimately, until they get into this period called the Kingdom Period, where they establish some kings, which is where we'll jump in this morning. They become one kingdom, then divides into two kingdoms, Israel and Judah. There's all sorts of internal fighting. And then they disobey and disobey this king until he finally says, you gotta go. He, he exiles them out of the land, just like he had promised. They go into Assyria, they go into Babylon, into captivity. But then God, in his faithfulness, not because they deserve it, eventually brings the people back into the land. And as these people continue to do things their own way, to try to be their own kings, God, we experience this 400 years of silence where we don't hear from God at all. No prophet, no word at all. And then we turn the page and we see Jesus coming in the flesh. The true king, the one true king, comes down to this earth. And what we celebrated last weekend, he defeats our sin, our king, by dying in our place, raising from the dead. And then he creates this new humanity, this new group of people he calls out from every nation 
called the church, where his bride, the called out ones, that are follow him to bow the knee to the true king and Messiah, Jesus, and to make disciples, other followers of this king here on earth, until he comes back a second time. And this time he's coming with a crown and a white horse to capture his bride and usher us into eternity with our king. That's the story. That's God's story, his story of creating and then rescuing, recreating fallen humanity through Jesus. It's a love story about our relationship with with him. Now, throughout this story, what did you hear over and over again? Our refusal to let God be king and want to be our own king. Until Jesus, King Jesus comes to make things right, to bring us back into submission to the true king. So back in, just like in that Chronicles of Narnia, we got to go, we got to zoom out. So we see the, here's the context. Now we're going to zoom back in. And we zoom back into this place after God has brought them into the promised land. When Joshua and his generation dies, they enter right back into their wicked ways. And so we see this three to four hundred years of judges, where there's this vicious cycle, this roller coaster, where they worship the gods of the nations around them. God oppresses them with those nations. They repent. God brings a judge in to save them. Rinse and repeat over and over and over. And so we get to the point where we come today, where we find this nation not being the shining example that they are supposed to be, obeying their law, bowing the knee, worshiping their true king. Quite the opposite. They become just like all the other nations. It's a pleasant little tale, isn't it? We jump into this point here in 1 Samuel. Chapter 8, we're going to see Israel this morning. They demand a king. God's going to warn them about this king, then ultimately he'll give them what they want. So we can follow along in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Verses will be up on the screen. Samuel's the last judge. And now Samuel's a pretty good judge overall, but there are times when he still lacks judgment. And in this case, pick it up in in verse verse 1 of chapter 8. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. Now, is this okay? You can't be dogmatic about this, but what's happening here is Samuel's appointing his own son, saying they will be the next judges. But as we look back at judges, that does not appear to be God's intent for how judges would be appointed. You look back at Judges chapter 2, then the Lord raised up judges. Who raised them up? The Lord did. The Lord would decide in their moment of need, I will give you the judge of my own choosing. So he raises up a judge who saves them out of the hands of those who plundered him. So what we see here is Samuel trying to do things his own way. And, and what should have Samuel done? He should have prayed to his God. God, who do you want to be the next judge, right? To let God raise up the judge that he would have. Now, not only is this a little case of nepotism, it was also a really, really bad decision. Because look at what his sons, who his sons are in verse 3. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. These were greedy little gusses. They were not in it to give to the people. They wanted to take from the people. You read at the beginning of Samuel, and there's some wicked things going on here with his sons sons. And so the people come to him and, and, and they say, Samuel, this is not going to work. You, you don't get to appoint. I mean, imagine if I, like as the pastor, I decided someday I will appoint my son, which is now getting closer and closer to a potential thing, which is exciting. But um, I, will, I, I will appoint my son as the next pastor. Now let's say my, my son is a scoundrel. Like he's a drug addict. He, he likes to punch puppies for fun. Like he's just this really bad guy. And I go, he's the next pastor. And you go, you don't get to make that decision. Like, God does. Let's pray about it as a church, just like as we're looking for our family pastor. Who would God appoint to us? We don't get, just, we don't get to decide these things. We pray to him. And so the people come with a similar complaint. They go, dude, 
uh, that's the message version. Then all the elders of, of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old. Right? That's a nice Hallmark card moment, isn't it? You are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. I was joking that back in 2015, when we had Pastor Larry here as our pastor, it was a similar situation. Our church came to him and said, you are old. We want a younger, more handsome pastor. I said, here am I, Lord. Send me down. Um, it said, you are old and your sons don't walk in your ways. Now, they have a legitimate point here. They go, you're too old and your sons are too wicked. And it's true. But then they take a left turn. Say, now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. They say, give us a king. Remember, they've been doing this judge thing now for three, four hundred years. We want a new system of government. We want the king. We want a monarchy. Now, notice, this is interesting, Samuel's reaction, but the king displeased Samuel when they said, give, or this, the thing, sorry, the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. Now, why does this displease Samuel? Why is this request for a king uh, make him unhappy? Well, if you remember back in Deuteronomy and the law, uh, when, when God is telling the people about what it's going to look like when they enter the land, this is really interesting. He, he's going to show them some guidelines for, for a king. He <laughs> um, says, you are about to enter the land your God is giving you. So they're still, they're still on the plains of Moab. They're, they're not entering into the land yet. He says, when you take it over and settle there, you may think we should select a king to rule over us like all the other nations around us. God is omniscient, right? He knows. Exactly, this is exactly what's happening in 1 Samuel 8, verbatim. He says, if this happens, when this happens, be sure to select as king the man the Lord God your, chooses, your, your, your Lord God chooses. He says, the people are going to ask for a king. So, so if they ask for that, here's the, the, person that I, the kind of person that I want you to put in place. Now look at what he says. The king must not build up a large stable of, a stable of horses for himself, accumulating wealth, material gain. The king must not take many wives for himself because they will turn his heart away from the Lord. That's a foreshadowing of, of Solomon and even David. And he must not accumulate large amounts of wealth in silver and gold for himself, which we see from the kings. When he sits on the throne as king, he must keep a copy for himself of this body of instruction on a, on a scroll. He's talking about the law that he gives in the, in the wilderness. He must always keep that copy with him and read it daily as long as he lives. That way he'll learn to fear the Lord as God by obeying all the terms of these instructions and decrees. This regular reading will prevent him from becoming proud and acting as if he is above his fellow citizens. So do you see what he's saying? This king that you, you appoint, I want him to be a giving king, not a taking king. Not one that takes horses and women and money but one that keeps my law, that obeys me, the true king, and gives to his people, doesn't take from his people. This is the kind of king that I want. I don't want him to be like all the other evil kings and the evil nations that are around you. So why is this request wrong then? If God says this is coming, and, and when they ask, go ahead and give it to them, isn't law and order a good thing? Is there anything wrong with a king inherently? Well, the key that we have here, the, 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 to unlock this, would be in verse uh, 5. It says, now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Like all the nations. What was God's purpose for choosing Israel as a nation set apart for him? If you go back again to the law in Leviticus, he explains this very clearly. He says in Leviticus 20, you must keep all my decrees and regulations by putting them into practice. Otherwise, the land to which I'm bringing you as your new home will vomit you out. He says, obey my law 
And if you don't, I'm going to exile you, which is what we saw, that exactly what happens. Now, this is why. He gives the heart behind the obedience. Do not live according to the customs of the people I'm driving out before you. It is because they do these shameful things that I detest you. The reason I drove them out was to give you the law, but to punish them. These were wicked nations. These corrupt, disgusting practices of child sacrifice and these sexual rites and prostitution in these temples. I mean, these terrible things. He says, don't live like them. Don't treat people that way. Instead, he says, verse 26, you must be holy. Why? Because I, the Lord, am holy. I've set you apart from all the other people to be my very own. They're a a kingdom of priests set apart to God, to be holy. That word means to be set apart. And this, this call of them for the nation of Israel is to be a light among the other nations. To be a light shining in a dark world. To show people the brilliance and beauty and majesty of God in the way that they live. In the way that they treat each other. But what's happening here? Not only is Israel not living according to that. They go, we actually want to be like those dark nations. We want to live like the world around us. We want what works for everybody else. That's the heart. That's at the heart of the problem. And here's God's response. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you. They have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. He goes, Sam, and they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me as their king. And what are they doing here? Just like they've been doing since Egypt, serving other gods. What is that? What is at the heart of that? It's idolatry. It's idolatry. And what does that mean? You always ask the right questions. Idolatry means worship of anything other than God. If we are delighting in something other than God, ultimately, if we are trusting in something, obeying something other than God, that becomes a false god. It's a form of idolatry. And and Jen Wilkin, she says these haunting words. She says, idolatry is a way to hedge our bets just in case God isn't actually sovereign. Do you hear that? Idolatry is a way to hedge our bets just in case God's not actually sovereign. So, So what are they doing here? What's the point of a king? A king is to provide peace for his people, right? To protect them, to provide security and prosperity. Now, what has God done other than prove himself capable time and time again? When they're in Egypt, he sends 10 plagues that no other human could do, brings them out, parts an entire sea for them. Then he brings them into the wilderness, and millions of people are hungry, and he literally starts throwing food at them from the sky. And he says, here's a bunch of manna. And when they say we're gluten-free, he goes, here's some quail, right? And he keeps throwing food from them in the sky. And then as they walk into the promised land, he starts knocking over walls with trumpets. And then just a chapter before this in 1 Samuel 7, he defeats the, the, the army of Philistia, how? By a thunderstorm. Alaskans are like, what's a thunderstorm? Um, but now they're going, eh, we don't really trust you. And just in case, just in case you turn out to not be all-powerful, just in case you prove yourself to not always be faithful, just in case you're not enough for us, would you give us a puny little human king that we can worship and serve, just in case you're not sovereign? The king is an idol. They're trusting in horses and chariots instead of the king of the universe. And aren't you glad we never make that mistake? (laughs) People demand a king. 
Number two, Samuel's warning against the kings. This is what God says through Samuel. Now then, obey their voice, verse 9. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. He says, go ahead and give them their king, but you've got to warn them of the consequences. Warn them of the consequences. And this is good parenting 101 right here, as God parents the nation of Israel. He says, give them expectations, and then show them, if they fail to meet those expectations, exactly what the consequences will be. So it's like when your child comes up to you and says, I don't want to eat my vegetables. And you go, that's fine. But then you're not getting dessert. And you're going to go to bed early. And just so you know, here are the expectations. So when you're in bed at 6.30 and you don't have any ice cream plastered all over your face, don't come whining back to me. You knew what you needed to do and you didn't do it. That's on you, right? So here's what God says to them. These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. Because if, if, if you want a king... I just want you to know, here's the expectations. Here's what's, here's what's coming down the lane for you if you go this way. Now notice the pattern here. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards. He will take your male servants and female servants. He will take the tenth of your flocks. Did you notice the pattern? Six times in this one little passage, he goes, the king that you will appoint yourself will be a taking king. Now, six times is not coincidental in the Hebrew mindset. Six was the number of man. It's the number of man, and it's not a perfect number. God is, God's number is seven. Man's number is six. And here's what he's saying. This human king, this human king that you appoint will be a taker. He does not have divine, unlimited resources like God. So he's going to be one that takes from you, not one that gives to you. A human king takes and a divine king gives. I do nothing but give and give and I take nothing from you. The human king will take. And then to further that, this picture of, of slavery and sin, he says this, and you shall be his slaves. Now that is very intentional language that God is using here. What's he reminding him? What's the picture that they have so clearly from just a few generations before this? The people in Israel or in Egypt living under slavery to Pharaoh says, you want to go back to your sinful ways? You want to go back into that symbol of slavery to, to the tyrant Pharaoh? This is what you'll be doing. You'll be inviting that slavery back into your own land with this king. Don't go back that way. And this is, he says in verse 18, and then that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourself. He goes, this is your choosing. This is your choosing. And read the rest of Samuel and Kings and Chronicles. How does this choice go for them? King after king after king. The majority of the kings are utterly wicked. Samuel's warning them, as a good prophet would. And then at the end, verse 18, he says, But the Lord will not answer you in that day. Because this is going to make you miserable. This is not going to go well. But do not come whining back to me. Because I told you exactly what's going to happen. You're not getting your dessert. This is the way it will go. He warns them. How do the people respond? Verse 19. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, there shall be a king over us that we may also be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. What a slap in the face to God. He just fought a battle with a thunderstorm a chapter earlier. They go, we want somebody here on earth that'll fight our battles for us. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord, which seems like a fool's errand. God, you know what they just said? Of course, I'm God. <laughs> I was right here. Uh, and I'm God. Uh, verse 22, and the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. Israel's neck stiffens. They dig their heels into the ground. They demand a king. And what happens here? God gives it to them. 
Now, you might say, well, now, wait a second. Why would God give them this king if he just told them how bad of an idea it was? The way that this thing is going to go, why does he grant them this request? If it's going to cause nothing but but hurt and and sorrow, if it's going to be somebody who's taking from them, why would God give it to them? Well, Tim Keller, he said it this way, all God does in the end with people is give them what they most want, including freedom from themselves. All God does in the end with people is give them what they most want, including freedom from himself. Because if you want the car keys, if you want to go your way, if you want to control this thing, here they are. If you choose me, I will freely give you myself. But if you choose a life apart from me, if, if, you, choose, if you choose to live separate from me, I will grant you that wish eternally. The choice is yours. I'll give you what you want. Romans chapter 1, we just studied this together. What happened? It says, even in creation, we know that there's a God. We can see that there's a God, but the sinful heart of man says, I will not honor you as God. I will not worship you as God. I will not obey you as my God or my king. And so what does Romans 1 say that God does in response? He does not force them to bow down to him. Three times we see God gave them over. God gave them over to the, to the lusts of their heart. God gave them over to their sinful, evil passions. God gave them over to their debased minds. And what he gives us is a hell of our own design. And it does not go well, just like the people of Israel. Remember the story of the prodigal son. This is what the father was doing. The son says, give me my inheritance now. I want, I, want it, I want this now. And so he gives it to him. He lets him go. And he goes to Vegas, and at first he's living it up, baby. He's having the high life. But where does it go? He goes deeper and deeper into his own sinful, immediate gratification until he's slopping around with the pigs. And he descends, and he descends, and he descends until he returns to the Father. He says, that way is not better. My way is not better than yours. And God knows often in our lives, we've got to hit rock bottom. We've got to hit rock bottom before we'll come running home to him. But the beautiful ending of the story, just like with that prodigal son, when we return to him, He's there as a loving father with his arms open wide, saying, welcome home. I'm still your king. I'm still your daddy. What are the lessons we have to learn here? Two two lessons. Number one, the way we seek to have something may be wrong when when the having itself may not be wrong. Could it not be worded more confusing? Um, Basically, it's saying that the thing thing in of itself may not be wrong, but the way we go about it, it could totally be wrong. So when you have a child who screams at you, I want a cookie now! Right? If anybody doesn't believe in the sinful nature. And what do we do? We go, oh, no, sir. Is that how we ask? Is that how we ask for a cookie? It is not. Right? I'm listening to the parents around here. I'm taking notes. He said, we don't demand things like cookies, right? We, we do not. Your life doesn't depend on that cookie. What, do you, what shall you do, son? You will come and say, Mother, Father, just like Jesus in the garden, if it be your will, take these vegetables from me. (laughs) Yet not my will, but yours be done, Father. I would love a cookie, but I trust your infinite wisdom and care as my parents to provide the nutrients that I need. And if that means broccoli, you know, here am I, put me on the vegetable cross, right? Isn't that just how your children, isn't that how it works? I'm totally ready for parenting. Bring it on. Um, could they have asked for, could they could have asked for a king in a humble, God-dependent way? Of course. And as the, the nations, and listen, this is a real thing. The nations around them are pressing in and attacking them. 
And they could have come to God and said, you're our king. How will you protect us? God, we need you. And if it be a king, we'll receive a king. And if that be a judge, we'll receive a judge. If it's another thunderstorm, whatever it is, we're trusting you. We're trusting you. The ultimate problem here wasn't the king. It was Israel trusting in something other than their God. So what do we put in trust? What, what do we trust other than him? What, what, what do we, how would you finish this sentence? Life would be good if I could just have blank. What would you put in there? And how we, and how, how we, how we answer this? Well, tell us what's really going on in our hearts. So as a kid growing up, you know what I thought would make my life perfect? A giant trampoline. I thought, I will have all of my needs met if my mom and dad will just buy me this trampoline. And that first year, that first summer, it was awesome. We were on that thing eight to ten hours a day, literally sleeping on it. Life was good, man. We had this trampoline. But what happened over time? I got older, and the trampoline got older. I'm in high school. I'm more interested in girls and basketball and my cool dyed blonde hair, look it up, than I am in this trampoline. And the trampoline gets older. The springs start to rust. It starts to tear apart. And eventually we get rid of it. And the weird thing was that trampoline did not offer me eternal life. <laughs> Who would have known? Amen. The same thing it happens. I got to get her up here again. I'm getting married in 41 days. Come on. Come on. But here, here's the deal. I, I can't wait to get married. I can't wait. Life would be good if I could just have Jill, right? But here's the truth. From what I hear talking to older people, mar marriage doesn't actually fix all your problems. It just ushers in new ones, right? <laughs> Don't tell her. Um, whatever blank you would put in there, maybe for you it's, man, if life would be good if I just got that job, if I just got that promotion within the job, if I just got that raise, if I just had a wife, if I just had some kids or some obedient kids, if I just had better health, if I just had more money, if I just got some more friends, if I just shed a few pounds. And listen, none of those things are bad things. Let me be clear on that. The problem is not the desire for those things. The problem becomes when we make good things ultimate things. And when the good things become ultimate things, they become empty things. We pervert those things. And instead of seeing them as a gift from our king and our God, we try to make them our king and our God. And in the process, we become just like the world around us. And this is what God has called us to be, is to be different, to be holy, to be set apart, just like the nation of Israel. The church means the called out ones, called out of this world and its systems. Now hear me on this. I'm not saying that he's given us a holier-than-thou-art attitude. We're not to say, look at how much better we are than the world. Look at all the, the bad things that they do that we don't do. Look at all the good things that we do that they don't do. That's not the attitude. The attitude is that we are not going to be like the world. We're not going to trust the things the world trusts. We're not going to want the things that the world want as ultimate saviors and God. So let me ask it in a, in a negative way and in a positive way. The negative way, in what ways are you guilty of trying to be like the world around you rather than set apart for God? In what ways in your life do you look just like the rest of the unbelieving world trying to be your own God and your own king? Or to say it in a positive way, in what ways could you live so as to demonstrate your citizenship is in heaven? How can we show this world that Jesus is our true king? The kingdom, that his kingdom, that we're seeking that first, that we're not here caught up in the world's system. So just a, just a touch point, a way of application. Right now we are living in the midst of a financial crisis. We're looking at budget cuts. We're looking at real hard things. And I do not want to sell those things short, especially in our education world. We're looking at lots of potential job losses this summer. And a lot of our own people or people you know are deeply affected by that. And we all have emotions with these things. But ultimately, 
way to show our fellow Alaskans is we do not put our ultimate trust in Mike Dunleavy. We don't put our ultimate trust in Juno or in our PFD size or in a tax cut or in the lack thereof. So what's this look like? Well, it looks different than the world, right? We don't get into screaming matches with people. We don't get angry. We don't get terrified huddled into a corner. I love that on our money itself, it says, in God we trust. In God we trust. Not in that dollar bill, but in our God who created all things. We're not putting our trust in the government. We're, tr- we're putting our trust in the one who appointed the government, who created the universe. He's our hope. He's our trust. He's our delight. And what we say to look different than the rest of the world is say, whatever the outcome, whenever, whatever the state deficit, my God is on the throne, and he will give me all that I need. And even in the midst of these hard times, we are generous people with our money, with our time, with the way we treat one another, and we show the world a different way where we bow the knee to our true king. And I can rest in that sovereignty. Number two, God's sovereign purposes are not frustrated by man's sin. God's perfect, powerful, sovereign way does not get frustrated by our sin. See, this, this whole thing didn't throw God into a loop and did not throw a monkey wrench into his plans. God has got that whole world in his hands. He's in control. And God knew this was coming. He didn't, oh, they're going to ask for a king? What do I do? And you go back to Genesis 49, Deuteronomy 17, 1 Samuel 2. Over and over again, God said this was going to happen. In fact, what we see here is what man intended for evil, God used for good. We see this over and over again in our story. Man makes foolish choices and God uses it according to his plans. All along, God's rescue plan for humanity was actually going to be through this kingly line. We're going to see in 2 Samuel, from David's throne will come this one who will sit on the throne forever, the ancient of days, as Daniel calls him. And he comes, and we celebrated his death and resurrection last weekend. The true king, the Messiah, comes to earth. And God wants to remind us, man, that there's no human king who will ever reign over all the other humans. In other humans are takers, only God is a giver, a good king. So he sends the God-man, Jesus, in our place, a human so that he could die, God to be his perfect sacrifice, the one true king. We're going to take communion this, this morning with one another, and we're going we're to shift our eyes from our own wicked, non-trusting, be-my-own-king hearts unto Jesus. So if you close your eyes with me, I just want to pray together. Father, we, we come this morning, I, I just want to confess and repent, and I'm sure there's some brothers and sisters in here who will resonate, of how often I try to make other things my God, other things my king, other things my security and my safety, whether it be money, relationship, identity. And so Father, I, I want to acknowledge that in your presence and say I'm sorry and repent of those things. For not making you the king of my life. For not trusting you as my sovereign. And we're all in different places. We have different things that we, that we put on that throne. We just want to come humble ourselves before you and acknowledge that. And then Lord, we know that you sent your, your true king to this earth. Not to take, but to give. To give his own life. Dying in our place. Giving us access to the father. Giving us new life. And now, Lord, the call here this morning, it's not to try harder and trust more. The call is to look to Jesus who gave, the only thing he took was our sin. And as he gave us a new heart, it's that new heart that beats in us. Jesus' life, 
Jesus was the one that said, not my will, but yours be done. All the rest of us have said, not your will, but mine be done. Father, you've given us a new heart. You've given us the ability to obey Jesus, to obey you through Jesus. And so now it's his, it's his life in us that we believe in, that we partake in as we eat of this bread and, and drink of this cup to remember his broken body, his spilled blood for the covenant, and the new life we have as he rose Easter morning. And it's in that king that we look to, that he'll make us a new people, a new people that trust you, unlike Israel and unlike our own wicked ways, that we'll trust you as the king, that will show this world what it can look like to be holy and set apart, to not trust in money or the government, to not trust in ourselves, but to trust you as the sovereign who uses even the... We're going to continue to fail you, God, but you're going to continue to use even that failing for your good purposes. So we just want to bow before you and acknowledge the amazing king. We pray in his royal, beautiful name. Amen.